So we are continuing in the book of Colossians. And so we finished uh, our first series in Colossians that was called All Things Held Together. And we really looked at the first two chapters in Colossians. And we looked at the sufficiency of Christ. If there was a central theme in that first series, it was the sufficiency of Christ. That he is sufficient in all things. That his work of redemption was sufficient for all of our life. That as believers in Jesus Christ, it was sufficient for our forgiveness of sins. It was sufficient for our justification. It was sufficient for our Christian life. That his work on the cross has empowered us and given us all things that we need for life and for godliness. All that we need is found in Christ. And, and that's what we looked at in these first several weeks in Colossians. And just like the Apostle Paul did in his letter to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians, there's really always a break in his letters. He starts off, you can see it in Ephesians, you see it in Colossians, you see it in Romans. There's always this break where he he starts off his letters and he points to Christ. He points to who Christ is. He points to who we are in Christ. And then he makes a pivot and he pivots and he begins to talk about as a result of who you are in Christ, as a result of of what Christ has done, This is how you are to live. And we see the same pivot in Colossians. And so as a result, we're switching the series as we begin into chapter 3. We're going to follow the Apostle Paul with this pivot. As he switches the focus from looking at who Christ is and what he's done to who we are called to be. So we're calling this series Out with the Old and In with the New. And you know, that's a phrase that, that is very common. We'll, we'll say that from time to time in our life, out with the old, in with the new. And we'll say that maybe at the beginning of a new year. Maybe you've said that before. You come up to a new year and you're thinking, okay, out with the old. I was not exercising uh, last year, but out with the old, in with the new. And so you, you make these commitments. You're going to start exercising out with the old body and in with the new one, in with the more fit uh, body that is uh, uh, that, that is what I've always wanted. I'm going to exercise and get my body the way that I want it to be. Or maybe you've said out with the old, in with the new, when you go to your garage. Anybody have a, a garage that is nice and neatly organized and everything is on shelves and it looks all beautiful? Is that your garage right now? It's not my garage. My garage is a uh, bi-weekly um, task where we have to get in there and rearrange things and and maybe you've gone to your garage from time to time and you start throwing things out because you're so frustrated that things keep piling up and you say out with the old in with the new or maybe when you move that maybe that's when it happens you you move and so you 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 purge I've moved quite a few times in my life since we've been married these last 16 years we are this is we are on to our fifth move we're not moving again But we have moved five times and we have purged every time out with the old, in with the new. And this is this phrase really is indicative of the Christian life. That that when we become believers in Jesus Christ, it is out with the old, but it is in with the new. It is this inward work. It is this inward work. This is a picture of the Christian life. That, that we are, that when we become born again, our old ways, our old habits, our old ways of thinking, we, we push away from those old thinking, those old ways. Our, 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 our sinful nature has been buried with Christ and now there's this new inward work out with the old, in with the new. And as we go through this journey in chapter three, we're going to, the first thing we're going to look at in Colossians chapter three is we're going to look at 
the big picture of this new inward work of what Christ has done in our heart. And then as we go into next week and the week after that and the week after that, that the, the, this big picture view of who we are in Christ and what he's done, it's going to work itself out in some very practical ways. We're going to look at the way in which we live, our thinking, the way in which, the way in which we live morally and our attitudes and, and, and the issue of forgiveness and the issue of loving one another. And then we're going to get into marriage and family and raising kids and how, and how we work, how we live. So it's going to get very practical in the next few weeks. But as the Apostle Paul begins in Colossians 3 and he makes makes this shift he shifts to focus on this new inward work and he's going to give us a bird's eye view of what a believer looks like what has happened in the life of, of of a believer that is going to impact the way that believer lives what happens in the life of someone who submits to jesus christ what is it that has happened and as a result of what has happened here's what their life looks like so what is true of a believer. What is fundamentally true in the life of a believer? So let's go to the text, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. We're going to read it, and then we're going to look at what, what the Apostle Paul shows us here, what the Lord shows us about what is fundamentally true in the life of anybody who is a believer in Jesus Christ. So it says there in Colossians 3, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Four simple verses. Four is a short text we're going to unpack here. But within these four verses, there are some fundamental realities that are true of all believers in Jesus Christ. And these will be the fundamental realities, the foundations that we will build on as we go into the very practical things that we're going to look at that are played out in our life because of this inward work, because of these foundations. And so really, what we have to do here before we get into verse 1 and 2, we're actually going to start in verse 3. Because verse 3 and 4 of these verses we read really sets the stage for, for what he says in verses 1 and 2. And so in answering the question, what is fundamentally true of us as believers? Let's look back at verse 3 and 4. It says, for you have died. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What does he say there? He says that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Christ is your life. So here's the first fundamental reality for all of us as believers in Jesus Christ. Here's the first one. A believer is alive and dead at the same time. A believer is alive and dead at the same time. How is that possible? How can you be both alive and dead? You're either alive or you're dead, right? I'm alive right now. But I can't be alive and dead physically. But this is the mystery of the gospel. This is the mystery of Christianity that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are both alive and dead at the same time. So as a way to illustrate that, the story goes like this. I'm going to tell you this story. The story goes like this. There's two brothers. There's two brothers. Two brothers that did not know the Lord, weren't serving the Lord. They didn't, they they, they were not believers in Jesus Christ and they loved wild parties. They loved wild parties. They loved to go and to do all the things that people do at wild parties. They love to drink. They love to, to carouse. They love to do all the things that people do at wild parties. And one day, somebody 
got a hold of these two brothers and preached the gospel to these two brothers. And they were confronted with the, with the reality of their condition. Apart from Christ, they were confronted with, with their sin. And they were confronted with the beauty of Christ. And they saw him for who he was and who he is. And they became Christians, these two brothers who used to love wild parties. And the word didn't spread very fast. The word didn't get around to everyone that knew these two brothers. And, and so one of their friends decides to send them a letter of invitation to another party. So they send the letter of invitation to these two brothers who are now born again. And they get the letter and they open it. They read it. They see the invitation. And they know they only have one option. One choice in the matter. So they take out the, their pen. They write a letter. And they write this one sentence. And they send back their RSVP. And here's what the sentence said. We regret that we cannot attend because we have recently died. We regret that we cannot attend because we have recently died. Do you get it? That's the picture of the Christian life. They were alive. They were physically alive. But something had died in them. What had died in them? It was that pull to the world. It was that, it was that overpowering uh, force of sin. That sin nature had been crucified. This is what Galatians 2.20 says. This is what is true of those hypothetical brothers. But this is what is true in my life and in your life. Galatians 2.20 says this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I've been crucified. I'm dead, but I'm alive. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. I'm alive, but I'm dead. I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to sin's power. I'm dead to the controlling power of the enemy. And I'm alive in Christ. The life that I now live, my life is lived in Christ. This is the picture of the life of a believer. The believer has been crucified with Christ. The the death of Christ was our death. It's so important that we understand this reality of the gospel. This is fundamental to the gospel of Jesus Christ that we must understand that the death of Christ was our death. When Christ died on the cross, it was my death that he died. I deserved death. Why do, why, why do we deserve death? Romans three twenty three tells us this. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans three twenty three. And that's the reality for all of humanity, for all have sinned. No matter who you are, whether you're a really good person or you're a really bad person, it tends to be that the really good people, whatever that their definition of goodness is, they tend to believe that they don't need any help. They don't need any justification. They don't need any forgiveness because they compare themselves to the really bad people. But scripture overwhelmingly tells us that all have sinned and all have fallen short of God's standard of perfection and God's standard of holiness. And so that means all of humanity, we're on equal footing. The really good people and the really bad people, we're all on equal footing. We're all dependent upon the Lord's mercy in our life. We are all guilty and worthy of eternal punishment. We're all guilty and worthy of eternal punishment. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin, the payment because of sin, is what? It's death. 
And so what we deserve, because we've all fallen short of the glory of God, we've all sinned, is that the wage that we earn because of our sin is death. Eternal death, physical death, and eternal death. But the glory of the gospel, the free gift of God, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus took our place. He paid the penalty. His cross was my cross. I deserve the cross and you deserve the cross. We all deserve the penalty of death. But he took our place. He paid the penalty of our sin debt. Now through faith in Christ we are born again. We are brought from death. Scripture tells us we are dead in Ephesians chapter 2. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. He brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Jesus looked at Nicodemus in John chapter 3, a person who was spiritually dead, and he tells him, you must be born again. This is the gospel. It is our cross. It is our death that we deserve that Christ died for us. He took our place so that we who are spiritually dead can be born again. Before We came to faith in Christ. We were spiritually dead and we were alive to sin. You know what that means to be spiritually dead and alive to sin? It means that your sinful nature is alive. Your sinful nature controls your thinking. And and some people don't even realize that that's their state or that's their position. But their, their sinful nature, their impulses and their flesh drive their life. And before we came to faith, this was our condition. We were spiritually dead. And we were alive to sin. But now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are spiritually alive. You've been crucified with Christ and you have been raised with Christ. And now you are dead to sin. Which is our first point. That as a believer, we are both alive and dead at the same time. We are alive in Christ and now we are dead to sin's power. Paul says this in Romans 6. Listen to this in Romans 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Before you were a believer, you were enslaved to sin. Sin was your master. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. He is our life. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, because we've died with Christ, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Right now, you'd be shouting me down. Are you shouting me down right now in your living room? Are you shouting me down or is it just your kids shouting right now? I don't know. Nobody's shouting me down right here. The, 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 the video men aren't shouting me down. All right, there we go. We got somebody shouting. This is the picture of the gospel. Verse 14, I love Romans six fourteen. For sin will have no dominion over you. The controlling power of sin will have no dominion over you because we are alive to God, but we are dead to sin and sin's power has no more dominion over you. You don't have to yield to the controlling power of sin anymore because you are new in Christ. Amen? The power of sin no longer controls us. It is no longer, it no longer has dominion or authority in our lives. 
Well, Colossians 1.13 says, we studied this earlier in the last series. Look at Colossians 1.13. Jesus, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, the control of darkness. And we have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. Amen. We no longer are under the sway of the world. We are no, no longer under the pull of the world. We are no longer enslaved to our sinful tendencies. We're no longer enslaved to our fleshly desires. Now we are enslaved to Christ. We are servants of Christ. He is our master. We belong to him and no longer. And now we no longer have to obey the impulses of our flesh because we're free. The power of sin no longer controls us. You ever heard somebody make the statement? They might say this in disgust. They'll say, you are dead to me. You ever heard that? phrase you are dead to me and so what happens is that somebody gets gets irritated or frustrated with somebody or they get they get exasperated and and they've been hurt and so they look at them and they say you are dead to me i want nothing to do with you any longer well you know what that's the thing that we say that's the phrase that we say to the power of sin the impact of sin on our life should produce a powerful hatred in our heart towards its control. And when we look at the sinful impulses that try to resurrect themselves in our life, that we can say, no, you are dead to me because I am alive with Christ. Now our eyes have been opened. We are alive in Christ and dead to the world. We are dead to the world's pull on our heart. And we are alive to Christ and his ways. And sin's controlling power no longer has authority in our life. So this is what is true of the life of a believer. And Paul says this in verse 3 and 4 in Colossians 3. He says that you have died with Christ. You've died with Christ and your life is in Christ. Your life is Christ. You've died and you have life. You are a believer is both dead and alive. Dead to sin. No longer enslaved to sin, but alive to Christ. That's the first fundamental picture of who a believer is. And if you're a believer here today, you know that this is true. But if you're not a believer here today, you know it's true as well. You know that the opposite of that is true in your life. And I just want to encourage you, if you're watching this here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you can be born again today, right here in this moment. You can acknowledge and recognize that Jesus is God, that he took your place and that he absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf. And that if you will believe in your heart and confess that Jesus is God and that he was raised from the dead, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that you can be born again. You can be saved. You can be forgiven. You can now walk out from under the curse of sin, the controlling power of sin, you can be forgiven and be new, be born again and be alive in Christ. So what's the next picture of who a believer is? This is the foundational picture that we have, we are both dead and alive. We're alive in Christ and we're dead to sin. Well, in view of those realities, that really takes us back to verse one. Let's go back to the text. In verse one, verse three and four kind of is the foundation Of what he's going to say in verses 1 and 2 in Colossians 3. So it says then. If then you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So he says in verse 3 and 4. That you have died with Christ. So he says in verse 1. If you have been raised with Christ. So you've died but now you are raised. You have new life. If then you've been raised. Seek the things that are above. 
You know, really, it says there, it says, it says, since you have been raised. That's really how it's translated. Instead of saying, if then you've been raised, it really is the picture of since you have been raised with Christ. Because you've been raised to a new life. Because you've been born again. Because you have a new heart with new desires. This is what your life should look like. This is what Paul is saying here. So this leads us to our second reality of who a believer is. Secondly, a believer never stops looking up. A believer is both dead and alive at the same time, and a believer never stops looking up. What does it mean, and never, he never stops, he or she never stops looking up? The text there said, since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Above, heavenly things, godly things. A believer never stops seeking what is above. Never stops looking up. Never, never stops pursuing. So when, when Paul uses this word seeking, it's, it's a verb, but it's a present tense active verb. It's a continual, it's a picture of continual seeking. So he says, since you've been raised with Christ, continually seek the things that are above. This is the picture of the Christian life, that a believer never stops looking up. A believer never stops seeking what is godly. Believer never stops pursuing what is Christ-like. A believer never stops pursuing the Lord. That, is, that should be true of our life, that we are continual seekers. That's what Philippians 3 says, 13 through 15. Paul says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, what does he do? He is Seeking, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's this continual seeking. A believer continually seeks the Lord. A believer, the posture of their life is pursuit. We live in a posture of pursuit of the Lord. Look what it says there in Philippians 3. He says that he strains ahead. He pressed on towards, towards the goal. Verse 15 says, let those of us who are mature think this way. If you're a mature believer, that's going to be the position of your heart. That you are pursuing the Lord. That you are pressing on. That you are straining. The language there in Philippians 3 is this straining. Like you are straining for the prize. Like you're a sprinter in a race and you see the finish line. You're straining. You're pushing. You're sweating. You're working. This is the life of the believer. It's continual pressing And looking up and seeking godly things. That is the posture of the life of a believer. You know the late, there's a late senator. American senator. His name is Hubert Humphrey. He was one day looking at the halls of Congress. And he was looking at all the seats. And he saw the divide on the right and on the left. Republican and Democrat. And he made a declaration He said this, you must must remember that in politics, how you stand depends on where you sit. How you stand depends on where you sit. And what was Hubert Humphrey saying? He was saying that wherever you sit, your political persuasion, conservative or liberal, wherever you sit determines how you stand. He was saying how you stand is determined by how you sit. And the same is true in the life of a believer because of who we are in Christ and where we are seated. What does Ephesians chapter 2 say? It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in 
Christ Jesus. So as believers, we are seated with Christ. So where we are seated impacts how we stand, what we stand on, what we do, how we act, how we live. That's what the senator was saying, that wherever you are seated, the posture of your life determines how you live. That is the picture of the life of a Christian, that however we are seated, if we are in Christ, then it means that we will be continually pursuing the Lord. Our faith in Christ produces a fundamental transformation of our pursuits. The Lord becomes our first priority. That is the picture of what the gospel does in our life. We are both dead and alive. We are dead to sin's sway and sin's pull. But we are alive to Christ. And as a result of this new life in Christ, now we are pursuing Christ's first place. He is the first of our pursuits. We seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. We are seeking Him, seeking His way. Do you remember when you first met your future spouse? If you're married here today, you know what happened that day you met your your spouse for the first time before you married him or her? You became fundamentally transformed the day you met your future spouse. That's what happened in my life became fundamentally transformed. I walked into a church down the road here on 311, a little bit further down. I walked into that building. I looked across. Somebody had already told me that Estelle was going to be there. I already knew her name. She didn't know me from Adam. I showed up. I looked to come find her. I wasn't looking for Jesus that day. I was looking for Estelle Foray. And I found her. And I was fundamentally changed that day. Fundamentally changed. From that moment, she had my gaze. From that moment... I wanted to know her more. From that moment, I was curious. Who is this woman? What is she like? What are her interests? What are her desires? What does she want to be when she grows up? I wanted to know who she was. And I began the pursuit. I began the pursuit. And that's the same picture of the Christian life. You know what happens? Is that when you begin that pursuit, you throw all things aside. That pursuit becomes your number one goal. Do you know what, what happened in my life? My brain was permanently damaged because of what she did to my heart. That's what happens. My brain was permanently damaged. I have brain damage because of what Estelle did to my heart. And so now her, her heart and, and her love and her life became my priority. And I did crazy things during that time when I was dating her, pursuing her. I, I remember one thing that I did. She went away to Pennsylvania for 21 days. It's terrible. This girl that I'm pursuing, that I'm dating, she goes away for 21 days. And so I got brain damage. So I'm going to do whatever my brain damaged brain comes up with. And that's what happens. You do crazy things. You do things that you wouldn't normally do. Why? Because I was pursuing her. She was my number one priority. And so I came up with an idea. That for 21 days, every day of the 21 days, I was going to go to a location that we would do things together, whether it was Barnes & Noble in New Orleans, whether it was Popeye's, I would go to, we would go eat at Popeye's on, on some dates, or whether it was Copeland's, or whether it was Putt-Putt Golf, or uh, one of the days, and, and I would go to all these different places, and I would take pictures of myself. This is before selfie phones. This is before the smartphone, because we started dating in 2002. And the iPhone didn't come out until 07. 
And so this is before cell phones. So this is actually a disposable camera that I would have people take pictures of me with. And one of the things that I did, we, we, I, we would wash my car together. So I took a picture of me washing my car. I took a picture sitting by myself at Popeye's. I took a picture in front of Barnes & Noble. Somebody took a picture of me. I took a picture at church with the empty seat right next to me. And I did 21 of those pictures. And I, I printed the pictures. And I created a photo album. Miss You Days, 1 through 21. Why? So I was pursuing her. And I, and I still have not got over the brain damage. I love her with all my heart. The pursuit never ends. Estelle fundamentally transformed my life and I began a lifelong pursuit of her heart. The pursuit never stops. And this is what the Christian life is supposed to be like. That when the Lord fundamentally transforms your heart, that you never stop pursuing Him. Pursue, seek the things that are above. It's a continual seeking that we don't stop. You know, what can happen though from time to time is that when we stop pursuing God, we stop pursuing Christ, it's because we've drifted and walked away from our first love. You know, there's a section in Revelation chapter 2 that gives us this picture. The church at Ephesus, they've lost their first love. They had some things that were right. They had some right ideas about truth and doctrine and God. But something tragic had happened. Listen to Revelation 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. You have good works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. They've been going through tribulation and persecution. And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Think back. Think back. Think about to that love you had at first when you first were born again. When you first, when the Lord first captured your heart. So this is a question we have to ask ourselves. You look at the church at Ephesus. He says, you have endurance. You hate evil. You can look at what someone says and you can compare it to what is true and you can say that they're false. You hate sin. You are patiently enduring persecution for my namesake. But you have lost the motivation and the reason why. You lost your first love. You have quit pursuing me. So this is what can be true of our life. Listen to this. Your doctrine may be good. But is your heart still pursuing the Lord like it did when it was first captured by Him? Your doctrine, our doctrine might be good. But is our heart still pursuing the Lord like it did when it was first captured by Him? You remember the moment. You remember the time when you were first born again. It was like you saw the world completely different than you did the moment before. You saw sin differently. You saw, you saw what you, your, 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 your values changed. What was important to you in life changed instantly when the Lord saved you. Your priorities changed. You were passionate about the Lord and you wanted to tell everybody. You were eager to tell everybody. And, and, and I know that that is the, the position we were all in as believers in Christ. But there's a temptation we all face. Is we all face the temptation to drift. We all face the temptation to slide away from that fresh, hot passion 
for the Lord. So what is the answer in Revelation 2.5? The Lord gives the answer to the church at Ephesus and he gives us the answer. In Revelation 2.5 it says three things. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Three things. Remember, repent, and return. Remember, repent, and return. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember how Christ saved you. Repent and return to the things you did at first. Return to the 21 days, the 21 miss you days. Return to the spontaneous dates. Return to the love notes. Return to the spontaneous buying of flowers. Return, return, return to what you did at first when you pursued the Lord with all of your heart. This is the life of a believer. A believer never stops looking up. A believer never stops pursuing. And when we do get off track, and when our eyes are caught by the ways of the world, we must remember, we must repent, and we must return. This is fundamentally true of us as Christians. We were dead and alive. We are dead and alive at the same time, alive in Christ, but dead to the world. And we are continually pursuing the Lord with all of our heart. And lastly, here this morning, a believer lives above the fog. A believer lives above the fog. You're like, what are you talking about, Pastor Ben? Believer lives above the fog. Let's go back to the text there. This verse 2 in Colossians 3. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things on the earth. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things of the earth. So this is the practical aspect of what our continual seeking looks like. So he says in verse 1 that we are to continually pursue the Lord. Continually run after the Lord. That we never stop looking up. We never stop seeking. What does that actually look like? It looks like living above the fog. And I'll explain that here in just a, a, a couple minutes. But that looks like setting our minds on the things of heaven. Not on the things of earth. Seeking God continually looks like setting our minds on what is true, what is good, what is holy, what is righteous. This is what Philippians 4, 8, 9 says. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is what it means to practically, continually pursue the Lord. You set your minds on what is godly. You set your minds on what is true, on what is pure, on what is holy, and what is commendable. If there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The continual seeking looks like seeing the world's view of things for what it is. And then setting our minds on things that are above. That's what it means to continually seek the Lord. It's to set your minds on things that are above not on things of the earth. It's a higher plane of thinking. Look at 1 John chapter 2. It says, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, this is speaking of the world system, the way in which the world sees things, what the world values, what a worldly person values, what they prioritize, what they pursue. Do not love those things or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world and the, the ways the world the, the way the world sees things, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, 
What's in the world? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. This is what controls the world. The, the, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the mind, and the desires of the eyes. This is what controls this world system. And what does John say? And the world is passing away with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So this is the picture here. That this continual seeking of the Lord is this, is this practical determination in our heart as Christians that we are going to set our minds above the fog. Above the way of the world. And this is what I, this is the picture I had in my mind as I was studying. The, the mindset of the world, the view of the world, the way they view the world, the way they, they set their priorities, their values, the evil world system. It's like a fog. It's like a fog. It's like, it's like a, a thick, dense fog that you can't see through. And if we're not careful, we're living in the middle of the world and we're in the middle of that fog. And we're not setting our minds on things that are above. But a believer lives above the, above the fog. I want to show you a picture of what some dense fog looks like. To me, this is what the world looks like. This is what it's like living in this world here today. The, the, the mindsets, the anti-God views, the views about marriage, the views about sexuality, the, the, the views about religion, and, and all their views. It's like this dense fog that you have to walk in as we're living this Christian life. And, and many of us, we're, we, we, if we're not careful, we start losing the battle and we get, we get lost in the fog. We get lost in that dense fog and we lose our way. You know, look, you, you can't make your way through dense fog like that. And that's the idea. And that's the idea that, that this is what the ways of the world are like. This is, the, this is what this present worldly system is like. It's like a fog of beliefs that keep people from being able to accurately evaluate life. They keep people focused on surface level earthbound thinking. But as believers, we must live above the fog. Check out this picture. This is who we're to be. You see that guy up there? Where's he at? He's seated in heavenly places, so to speak, with the Lord. He is above the fog. He can accurately evaluate what is going on around him. He can see around the corner. He can see around the bend. Why? Because he is living above the fog. This is the life of the Christian. We live above the fog. We, we, live, we, live, we live for a heavenly perspective. We're not in the midst of this fog. And, and, it's, and, for, and for some of us, if we're not careful, it's so controlling. It's like, it's, it's, it's like this. You, you lose your bearing. You lose your footing. And you can't see clearly, you can't think clearly, it's because you've been living in the fog. You've got to get above the fog. You've got to get to a higher plane. You've got to think godly things. You, got to, you, you have to fight for a heavenly perspective. And I believe that this coronavirus pandemic, I believe this coronavirus pandemic is doing some things in our world here today. You've got the world living in the fog those that don't know Christ. And you got us as believers, we're fighting for a heavenly perspective to live above the fog of anti-biblical views, to live above the fog of that. But this pandemic is doing something. It's causing the non-believer living in the fog to start questioning all the messages they've been hearing. But it's also at the same time causing the believer who's fighting for a heavenly perspective 
they're also evaluating their life. Have I actually bought in to the, to the lies of the world? Have I actually been living my life in the middle of the fog and I don't even realize it? Is that possible here today? Absolutely. That we can be living even as believers in the middle of the fog and we've lost a heavenly perspective. This coronavirus pandemic is causing both of us to evaluate our life. Jesus said this in Luke 12, 15. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to Jesus, said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. That's like the cloud of the world. We're driven by covetousness in the world. Take guard against the fog of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. That's heavenly thinking. That's a heavenly perspective. This mindset should always be ours as believers. But I believe pre-coronavirus, pre-coronavirus, I believe that the church, the church, I'm not saying living word church, but I believe the church, Some of us here could be included in that. But I believe before the coronavirus era, the church was caught up in the fog. Was caught up in Luke 12, 15. We were caught up in the abundance of our possessions. We were caught up in our prosperity. We were caught up in a worldly view of things. Yes, we loved the Lord and we were seeking the Lord. But we had grown numb. And we had got lost in the fog. We had slowly believed the lies of the enemy about this life. We got lost in a fog of worldly mindsets. I believe that that has been the position of the church. And this is a wake-up call now today. It is a time for you and I to wake up. I don't know when we're going to meet again. I have no idea what our governor is going to do. I don't know what it's going to look like when we get back. But I believe that before the coronavirus era, we were caught up in a fog of worldliness. A fog of worldly thinking. And we have have allowed worldly thinking to get into our lives and to creep its way into the church. And we have misplaced our priorities as a church, as the church. We, 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 We slowly begin to think that church was about what we do here. The church was about how we, how we entertain people. Church was about the experience. You have churches that, that call their church services, they call them experiences, where you come in and you experience something. And we have slowly, the church has slowly flipped this idea of worship to the Lord in the gathering to an experience that someone walks in and, and experiences and feels something. We flipped it on its head because we bought into the fog of the world. We adopted a me first, what I want, earthbound perspective. We were lulled to sleep by our prosperity. And we need to relearn the lesson that Jesus taught in Luke 12. Our life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, the abundance of successes, the abundance of buildings packed out with people. Our life, our ministries, our churches, it's not about how big the building is and how many people you can put in there. It's about exalting Christ. It's about disciples being made. It's about the gospel moving forward. We have to live above the fog. The church must be the church. Whenever it looks like when we return to our, quote, normal life, 
I pray that we don't return with an earthbound mindset to whatever we do. With a me first mindset, with a what can I get out of God mindset. I pray we never return to that in, this, in, in our churches here today. I pray that none of us ever return to a what can I get out of God mindset. That I come to church and say, God, what, what can you do for me? What can I get out of God today? I pray that that will, that, that, that will be forever gone in our life, forever gone in our churches. That when we come to church, it's, Lord, what can I do for you today? How can I serve you today? How, how can I worship you today? What pleases you today? Not sitting back, watching, what are they going to do to appeal to me, to make me feel comfortable? I pray we, I pray we abandon that. We leave that behind. Theologian Warren Wiersbe says this, our feet must be on earth, yes, but our minds must be in heaven. Paul speaks to this, what we're talking about here as we conclude here this morning. He speaks to this mindset that we must have in Ephesians 5. He says this in Ephesians 5, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What's Paul saying there in Ephesians 5? He's saying what he's saying in Colossians 3. That we must seek what is above, that we must not be drunk by the ways of the world. That we must look carefully how we walk, how we live. That how we walk and how we live is determined by where we sit. And if we are seated with Christ in heavenly places, then our life is transformed and our life is different. That we are no longer bound by sin. We're no longer enslaved to sin. We're no longer enslaved to the views of the world. That we are completely different. Our pursuits are different. We walk carefully. We're not unwise but we're wise we make best use of the time why because the days are evil we don't have time to come back to a me first self-centered life as a christian we don't have time to come back to that this is our moment as a church this is our moment as the church in america and the church around the world to come back different to be changed To let these truths be fundamentally true in our life. Because we are dead and alive at the same time. We continually pursue the Lord. We return to our first love. And we live above the fog. We live above the fog. We are sober minded. We're not drunk on the mindsets of the world. But we are filled and controlled by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's my prayer. Amen. A believer is alive and dead. Alive in Christ and dead to the world. We continually pursue the Lord who has captured our heart. And we live above the fog of the world. Worldly mindsets. I pray it's true in my life. And I pray it's true in your life. Can I pray for you today? Can I pray for us today? Lord, I pray that that Reality would be true in our hearts. God, forgive us for our wondering. Forgive us for misplaced priorities. Forgive us, God. Help us to remember, to repent, 
and to return. God, I pray that the church would never be the same. That we would never return to the way we were before. That our priorities would be changed. That we would come with a heart of worship for you. Not out of what we can get. We're not coming for what we can get out of it. For our own experience and our own pleasure. It's not what church is. God, may we never return to that. God, may we come each and every day in our life. Whether we're here or at home. That we live for an audience of one. That we live to glorify your name. That we live what we believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the only way to heaven. May we live that in our life. I thank you for these truths. Lord, press them into our hearts. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, I love you. Tonight, we have a worship night, 6 to 7.30 p.m. I ask that you'd come. We will be socially distanced. We're going to have everything separate, but it's also a time for us to come and to gather. The weather is going to be beautiful, low humidity. The front pulled through yesterday. Come and worship together. We have special things for the moms. Come, let us honor you as moms. Happy Mother's Day. I knew I was forgetting something earlier. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. Let us come and honor you tonight. Thank you for listening. God bless you. I'll see you next time.